Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, first-time managers in Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I'm Paula Sizik, and we're trying something new this episode. Due to COVID, we are recording this podcast remotely. We are all stuck in our home closets or under blankets in order to get the best sound quality possible, so bear with us. Today, joining me, we have Kristen Demophiles. Kristen, say hi. Hey, everybody. And, of course, we have Jane Garza. Hello, everyone. We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and then most importantly, we talk about the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. Kristen, why don't you tell us a little bit about the backstory of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, since this was actually your recommendation. Sure. So today we're going to be discussing the challenges that first-time managers face and how to manage those new managers if you're their superior. So specifically, we're zooming in on Zoe from Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Zoe is a coder at a tech firm, SparkPoint, in San Francisco, where she's recently been promoted to manager of her team. She's also suddenly started hearing people's innermost desires in the form of elaborate musical numbers, which might give her an edge or drive her crazy. Spoiler alert. So, guys, a little bit of a surprise. I wanted to try something different, not just because we're all dialing in due to COVID. Mm. Because this show is a musical, I wanted everybody to sing their responses (laughs) to the answers to these questions. So I'm not sure if you guys got the memo, but there were rehearsals. Um, We had a whole dance sequence planned. So you guys are ready, right? Oh, God. You're trying to bring the cringe of this show into our real lives. (laughs) So five, six, seven, eight, when we first meet Zoe, (laughs) she is a part of the programming team at SparkPoint, and she is friends with, or at least she's she's at the same level as the other members of her team. Then she gets a promotion. So how do you handle going from a peer relationship to a boss direct report relationship? Mm. Good question. I mean, it's an awkward one because you're just kind of rebuilding and resetting your relationship sort of from the ground up. I feel like it takes the conversation of exactly that, like to say, here's what I I think, like, here's where I would start it. Like one, here are all the things I respect about the things that you do and what I won't want to change about our relationship and how you work. Two, here's what is going to start to change and where I might have some boundaries around how we work together. Um, in terms of how I make decisions or um, what kind of conversations are taking place where, how you can expect to see my behavior change so that you're not surprised or like taken off guard by it. I think that's where I would start. I think the most, the more open you can be from the very beginning, the better, but it really does take looking at it as a total relationship 
reset versus just one that's evolving, right? Like how do we totally rebuild the norms around how we work together? Yeah, 100%. I agree with Jane on that one. I think the other piece is like what not to do, which is what sort of unfolds with Zoe. She's got a lot of proof and, you know, you can't blame someone for wanting to do well when they're promoted and they take on more of a leadership role. Um, but how you do that is really important. And, you know, she she ends up micromanaging a lot of people and ruining the trust and rapport that she's built with her team because um, she's she wants to be in control so much and really prove herself and that actually ends up getting in her way. Um, so there's actually a good example here of what not to do um, when, you're, when you're making that transition. Yeah, Zoe is really lovable. And so when she does all these missteps in the show, people kind of deal with it and some people are irked, but it overall works itself out. But she really is taking all of the classic missteps that you see. Um, in this kind of transition. I think I bet we'll talk about this more, but the biggest thing here is that she's going from an individual contributor role to a manager role. And at the end of the day, that is a full-on job change. It's not an evolving of your role. It's not like taking the skills that you've done really well and applying them even further. It's sort of the opposite. Like you have to learn a whole new skill set. How do I now lead people, motivate people without... Um, my own hands doing the bulk of the work, which is where she starts out. She starts, she's like, fine, you won't do it. I'll just do it myself, um, which is a, not a great way to get your team motivated, of course. So that's actually a really great point. One of her first tests as a leader is when the team's assigned a project, but they're not really interested. So she just decides to do all the work herself. Okay, forget about it. It's my idea. I have the vision. I'll just do the entire project myself. Uh, well, this is a really common problem that we see with a lot of new leaders. What's wrong with this scenario? How can you address it with your team if you find yourself trying to step in and doing the work for them? Yeah, I, I really like Francis Frey's definition around leadership, which I'm going to butcher right now. But Francis Frey is a researcher for HBR and talks a lot about how you build trust inside organizations and motivate teams. And I think she actually just had a book come out this year around that exact topic. In her definition, she talks about um, leadership being the ability to motivate people while you're there so that they continue to be motivated in your absence, right? So it's like the work that happens in your absence is really a good sign of leadership. And that is your goal as a leader. It's not to get the work done. It's to get the work done through others so that you're kind of taking their collaborative skills in order to build to the ultimate outcome. Right. But I thought as a leader, you were supposed to be watching your people all the time, remotely surveillance, right? Like even with people <laughs> working remotely, it's best to have cameras in front of people just so you can check on them all the time, right? That was my understanding. <laughs> yeah, there's all these like fun new tools coming out from Silicon Valley where they track your eyeballs to see if you're looking at a screen for eight hours a day, um, which is so awful. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a very classic perspective of leadership, like seats and butts are what get productivity. But so many studies have found time over time that that's not how it actually works, right? It's not about being in your seat or getting the work done through an eight hour day. It's about getting it done in general. And we should be able to trust people further than just um, time cards and management and instead treat them like adults and let them find where and when they'll be engaged. As long as there's like really clear alignment and vision setting from the leader around what they need to accomplish, the how should be left a little bit up to the employees. 
Yeah, absolutely. Just to build on that, I think that's about like bringing your team in to say, here's the outcome that we want to get to and having them be part of the process of determining how to get there. That works for all of them, most of them in the ways that play to their strengths or the things or in the ways that they're looking to build their skills. And I think that's sort of how you start to create, you know, a self-managing team, right? Which ultimately is what you want to get to. You know, I was just thinking that the chirp, which is one of the devices that SparkPoint is working on, would actually be a great workplace surveillance tool because it is building in uh, lots of tracking, lots of visual recognition. So I think there's a lot of possibility in, in the chirp being applied uh, to, to their own situation. Totally. So did you all not get like, I just got pure like cringe goosebumps when they started talking about that product because they haven't talked about this yet, but I'm hoping that it becomes a storyline on the actual show. But it's such an invasion of privacy. The tool itself is like, mm-hmm. let's record every single face that you encounter throughout the day so that we can tell you the personal information about that that human. Um, yeah, it's it's really scary. <laughs> I hope it never it, becomes a real thing. We're we're going back into our our uh, podcast on the circle now. Mm, that's right. Back yeah. back into surveillance land. I thought I was done with that. <laughs> I just thought this was such a traditional Silicon Valley in invention, right? Of of things that people don't really need. Like they never validated this with real users. They just invented it for themselves. So uh, true. But we're. We are we are digressing a little bit. I do want to keep us focused on on the uh, first time leaders. So you've set up the task. You've made it clear what the outcome is. Your your hands off, right? But your team isn't delivering the results that you want. How do you motivate your team to work harder, faster, better? Zoe's manager Joan seems to rely on insults and fear. I haven't breathed outside air in over 48 hours. Because air is for winners. But maybe there's a better way. I mean, I think that requires Zoe taking the time to really get to know her team in this capacity. So she has the benefit of having worked with them before, uh, but also needs to understand like what their career aspirations are or their areas of development that they're interested in to be able to to make that connection between the work um, and what's possible for each of her direct reports in that way. And even, you know, when, when we work with companies just to do user manuals, for example, there's a lot that you can extract from even like a simple exercise like that, just to get a better understanding. And I'm not sure that, that Zoe really knows that aspect because she hasn't taken the time to explore that relationship in the new dynamic. Yeah, I think um, there's a difference between what motivates you to collaborate with me versus what motivates you to do the thing I'm delegating, right? So as a peer, me and Kristen might be motivated to collaborate with one another differently than if one of us was the other's manager and now we're figuring out how to delegate to one another. So that's the other part of the reset of the relationship is like now we're talking about totally different motivations. Um, and so you have, you kind of have to take it in, in with that context as it takes that conversation to not assume that you already know just because you know these people because you've been promoted in, but instead reset and say like, we've never had this conversation. What typically motivates you? What kind of leadership styles do you like? That and then also, 
as Kristen said, like everyone's motivated by different things. You're not going to find the one thing that motivates an entire team. Um, at SparkPoint, it seems like a lot of the folks there are motivated by working at a hotshot tech company. They talk a lot about like, we've got the cream of the crop. Like this is, you know, we're doing something incredible with the watch that we have. Um, and so part of the motivation might just be like, we want to be in headlines. We want to be at a company where people are really known for being an engineer on this particular product versus at one of our clients right now. Um, it's a biopharma company and people are motivated by the end patient, right? Being able to give an improvement to quality of life. Like it's a huge and very different motivator, but that is at this client, this particular client, that's the motivation of like, we'll work over 40 hours a week. We'll do what it takes because we know the patient is waiting for us to resolve this challenge. Um, so I think it just depends on like, what's the context of the actual company and what's the context of that person and kind of threading all of those pieces together as a starting place for figuring out where to start to to motivate people and, and give them a direction. And in terms of building Zoe's skills, she needs to be able to understand how she's delegating. I, I, I see this a lot of times in first-time managers where they think they're saying something, but their direct reports don't actually understand it as it's meant. And so being able to have that self-awareness to say, you know, I'm talking about this thing or I think I'm delegating it, but is that really how someone else is interpreting it? And so getting very good at building in some sort of like self-check on that or even asking your direct reports to say, you know, can you repeat back what you took out of this just to make sure that we're, that we're clear on, on the next steps. Things like that can help really get at the crux of, of what someone may need to delegate instead of having to backpedal to figure out what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And we're starting to talk about like the lear learning curve of being a manager too, is it takes a bit of trial and error with each person because everyone's individual with your own self, because you're learning to motivate over time. Of course, we build that skill. Like once you're, you've been a manager or leader for 40 years, you're going to have much more expansive skill set than you will your first day or your first 30 days. Um, and part of that is built from the feedback loops of your people. Part of that is also peer feedback. I don't, Zoe doesn't have a whole lot of peers around her that she can tap into to say, hey, I'm reaching this weird point. Like, what did you do when you needed to motivate your team and you knew they were exhausted, but this thing had to get done by Friday? Um, I think that happens a couple times in the show, but there's not as many opportunities because I don't, I don't see as many teams surrounding her. I identify a lot with Tobin. He's, he's one of the characters. He's motivated greatly Tobin. by food. Mm -hmm. He's very excited to uh, get the free seafood from the seafood bar on floor six as opposed to as opposed to the oatmeal bar that they currently have. So they get a giant seafood tower and we get an oatmeal bar? I'll be right back. Don't underestimate the power of, of food. It's true. It's true. It's a good point. Yeah, and Tobin is like yeah. very peer motivated too, right? Like he wants people to think he's great. <laughs> or at least like he's cool. <laughs> Not necessarily that he's nice, but that he's cool. He really wants that. Um, and so tapping into like, what is, are you motivated by others? Are you motivated internally? That's that's the starting point for this conversation. Yeah. Well, he did win a spelling bee. It's pretty hard to get cooler than that. <laughs> it's a his relationship with Leaf is also really interesting when you get into the season where their ambitions change. Mm -hmm. And as peers working together, being on the same team, working towards the 
same goal, suddenly having that fork happen where you also require another conversation between two people saying mm -hmm. like, you know, our career aspirations are a little bit different and it's like, there is a little bit of resetting in the workplace around that. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. another like tie back to, to the setting of expectations or resetting. Jane, I want to go back to your point about the fact that Zoe doesn't seem to have a lot of peers, right? She doesn't get a lot of training on how to be a manager. Joan is not really focused on being a mentor. She kind of tells Zoe just to like figure it out. Look, I'm sure you've got it all figured out, but if you want some advice, here it is. Be strong, be bold, and keep your personal life to yourself. Mm -hmm. So Zoe's stuck reading books and, and listening to podcasts to learn how to manage her team. And she, her one peer that she does sort of get advice from is Simon, and he's, he's not on her team at all. Mm -hmm. And later on, when Max gets his new role, he says he's read up on leadership, but he's kind of equally starting from, from zero. So if you are new to a role and you're not getting the training that you need from your leader, what are some best practices? How mm -hmm. can you go about improving as a leader? Yeah, so many things. I mean, I feel like Zoe is um, a self-learner, so you can see her start to listen to podcasts and read books, which is a good place to start. Um, definitely a good place to like get some grounding knowledge. I like to learn from others' stories personally. Like when I think about my own learning style, it helps me to, that peer learning piece is so important. Because she doesn't have it internally inside the organization, I would encourage her to find it externally. And there's so many groups within Silicon Valley because so many people have gone from the individual contrib contributor to now a leadership role, especially in Silicon Valley. Um, and just in general, there are so many groups for leaders who underrepresented leaders, right? Like women, um, people of color, thinking about what types of groups which can you particularly tap into to help get a peer network from people who have been in your similar situation and start to learn from their experiences. That can speed up your trial and error, right? Because you're listening to other people's trial and error rather than having to go through it by yourself um, and make every, every mistake that every new leader makes on their own. And then the other thing is like executive coaching, such a good place to start. And mm -hmm. so many companies will sponsor that for you. So seeing if there might be a good coach that's coaching on something in particular. So if it is, motivation or finding your leadership style or what have you there are coaches that specialize in all sorts of things and that's the thing that we often work on with our clients too um, is coaching around things like leading change and yeah all sorts of factors of leadership it's like another like it's a whole another field to study just like just like being an engineer just like any other role there's so much there that you can you can tap into a lot of different resources Kristen, what would you add to that list? I was going to uh, mention coaching as well, but there's actually a book. It's called The Making of a Manager. The mm -hmm. author escapes me now. She's, I think, a UX designer at Facebook who ended up writing about her experience of taking on that leadership role. And it's literally the book that I would recommend to Zoe right now. Yeah, Just I read the that tech book. field. Oh, it's so good. Julie Zhao. Yes. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah, it's exactly, it's basically um, Zoe's story. <laughs> so 100%. it's perfect one-to-one. -one. And of course, self-plug. We would also recommend that she visit the Academy, which <laughs> is Nobel's free resource for tools and case studies and just explainers on what management is, what leadership is, and how you can improve. So that's academy.nobl.io, just in case anybody is, is wondering. 
So going back to Joan, who is technically her manager, Zoe's manager, she is uh, maybe not at the level of self-awareness that we would like to see in a leader of her level. She tells Zoe to keep her personal life separate from work, but then drives her into conversations about her collapsing marriage and sex life. You look at the naked man beside you. Oh, gotta go. So much work to do. Ta-ta. Off the table. She wants big ideas from the team, but then she mocks them when they share ideas. People, I keep telling you I need to hear the next big idea. What have you got for me? Joan, right here. I got this robot dog that can tell the weather idea in my back pocket. Okay, keep it in your back pocket. I don't get it. How hard can it be to come up with something game-changing, brilliant, and revolutionary? The world is waiting. So am I. And she shares anonymous feedback about individual performance in a public setting. So all of this to say is, if you are managing a first-time manager, if you're in jo- if you're in Joan's role, what are some better practices? Well, it's like where to start with Joan, right? Um, I think it's important to start with with knowing that if you have a first-time manager, they are so hungry and absorbing everything that they can from you. Um, And that is a responsibility. And I think being able to have a conversation um, to even if you're willing to sort of dissect your own management style with your first time manager, I'm sure that you'll actually learn a ton about your own management style as well as helping someone else craft their own uh, management style that feels authentic to them. Um, so I think being able to have like one-on-one sessions, um, I think those are really important, but also commonly that like one of the first things to fall, especially if you're in a high pressure environment. Um, but being able to say, let's, let's prioritize this time to talk about, you know, where you have questions, what honestly can I help with, or how can I direct you to a better resource for certain skills? So if I have a direct report, Um, who is a first-time manager, and they really want to learn more about a certain topic. And I'm like, you know what, that may not be something that I am fantastic at, but I can direct you towards Jane or towards Paula, who have this type of expertise or experience in. I think that's um, knowing yourself is a great way to just start having conversations about what another manager might need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, in this scenario, Joan... I don't think uses the full potential of a leader below her, right? Like she's still kind of butting into a lot of the conversations when they have, there's a performance review episode and Joan is a part of all the performance review conversations along with Zoe. Before we do, your manager, Zoe, feels that we need to foster a more open, honest work environment. And that's why today we'll be sharing the results of the anonymous peer reviews that you wrote about each other a few weeks back. I thought the peer reviews were for internal use only. What's the good of bad news if you can't share it? Am I right? Zoe and I will meet with you individually to go over the results of what your friends and colleagues had to say about you. Um, And I think if in order for that role, a a leadership role to be useful and effective and have the impact that you want it to be, you kind of have to let that person have the reins and ownership and make their own mistakes. Um, So I think that's the first thing is like building in your own trust and discomfort of just saying, okay, so I've, I've trusted this person enough to promote them. That means I have to trust them enough to let them make the, let them make this decision, have this performance conversation, figure out what to motivate the team on next, plan the next phase of this project. A lot of things happen without Zoe's input. um, And then suddenly Joan is like, make this thing, figure it out. Right. So I think that's one of the, 
the missing things that I saw on the show. Um, Aside from that, I would also, I think what a lot of people wonder when they're promoted or when they get a new role is a bit of just like the why me? Like they were fighting for that role. And so of course they personally thought that they were the right fit, but instead there's like that voice that sometimes pops in, which is like, why me? What specifically did you think that I could do in this role versus someone else? And Joan's message to Zoe a lot of the time is like, you're the best coder, Um, which isn't really a reason to promote someone to leadership, right? It might be a reason to like promote them into a more senior level of coding, but not necessarily into leadership. And so um, giving, painting the, the picture of like, here's why you were hired and promoted into this role. Here's where I think you could grow. Um, here are my expectations. Now tell me what you need from me in order to get there. So you don't have to build the plan for them. You just have to build like, here's what I expect the team to get to. Here's what I expect from you. Now it's kind of on them, on Zoe, to share with Joan what she needs in order to actually like level up to that, that, that area so that Joan can trust her with decisions and, and plans. To throw Joan a bit of a bone, <laughs> um, I do think that ah. when, when she, um, <laughs> during that feedback episode, there were a lot of things that were not quite ethical, like she wrote Leaf's um, feedback and then shared that with everyone. But I mm-hmm. do think if I'm remembering this episode and, and there were 12 of them, so apologies if not, but she did take Zoe's idea to do anonymous feedback, but then she sort of like meddled in the implementation of it and left Zoe with the yep. consequences. And so there is a bit of that that I felt was like, Important to note where she did want Zoe to learn from something. She just happened to meddle a little bit too deeply and and sort of construct a a negative outcome for Zoe to handle. And I I don't think that testing your direct reports or managers like that is helpful. But I think there, there were lessons learned. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I I have a really hard time trusting leaders who like to test their people. I think it's just a bad way to develop people. I think instead um, that testing should happen on a one-on-one basis, right? So before the performance review conversations even happen publicly, Joan could talk to Zoe and say, okay, so you wanted to do this autonomous thing. What's your plan? What happens next? And then Zoe shares back, like, here's what I want to do, step one through four. And then Joan can say, okay, I would change step two and three to be X, Y, Z. So instead, that's like a feedback conversation versus a public test that could fail and, like, ruin some relationships on the team and hurt things in general, which it kind of does end up doing that in the show. Um, And it's still a learning moment, but, like, a much more painful one and one that kind of takes away a little bit of that leader's social capital. Um, So... Yeah, there's a lot of that sink or swim type of culture and uh, behavior in or at SparkPoint. And they they might benefit from exactly what you've just described for us, Jane, where if someone else knows that it's not necessarily a sink or swim moment, but all the people working on a particular project do, it's, it's just an unnecessary way of causing stress. Mm-hmm. Joan is a bundle of, how did you phrase it, Christian, semi-ethical or of of questionable (laughs) ethic issues. She is not just giving feedback on one of her subordinates, supposedly anonymously. She is also dating him. Uh, (laughs) She is dating her subordinate Leaf. 
Uh, meanwhile, Zoe has a quasi-relationship with Max and on again, off again, and he is also one of her subordinates and a best friend. So we talked a little bit about dating colleagues in Working Girl, but this is a different situation. This mm-hmm. isn't a peer level. This is, again, this is a direct report boss relationship. So I think we don't need to discuss that this is a bad idea. I think we're all aligned <laughs> on, on that, but you can speak up if you disagree. But what should you do if you find yourself attracted to your boss or your direct report? Look, we're human. Huh. Everybody is working really hard for 40 hours. So what, what should you do if you find yourself in this situation? Subordinate relationships are particularly off limits in my brain because um, there is an inherent power difference there and so you never know if if someone like leaf is saying yes let's date because he actually likes joan or because he's afraid he's gonna lose his job right you never you can never get that question answered in truth um and so it's safe to assume that someone could easily be intimidated into a subordinate relationship which is why they're so off limits in most office environments of course they happen especially in like early stage startups Um, where there are a lot of young people and maybe not HR and the rules just feel more loose. Um, It's, I don't know, it's only like, it's only a a problem waiting to happen usually. Um, So my advice is try to, if you really feel like this is a relationship that you want to pursue, my number one piece of advice, if like my friend is asking me this, let's say, I would say leave the company immediately leave and then try to pursue the relationship. Um, it's kind of one or the other in my mind. I completely agree with Jane. In my mind, it's like, a, it's, it's pretty off limits. It makes things really complex. And for someone who is a subordinate, I mean, and that's your livelihood, it's, you have to be really sure. And if you're really sure, then it means you should probably have a different workplace that where where you are and you can thrive and and do your thing yeah yeah I don't have much else to say (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's especially with subordinate relationships just because they've been those types of things only um there's so many examples of abuse right like sexual harassment actually being at the root of that um yeah I think there's uh obviously relationships in offices that aren't um between subordinates but in those scenarios, usually there's some like more formal process that you have to go through with HR to just like share with people that's what's happening. I think that's a little safer. There's no rules against that. I've seen it work out in offices, especially when people aren't like on the same team or working together. I think the tricky part is like if you're working together on the same team, people start to wonder if you're constantly agreeing with one another because you're in a relationship or because you actually agree with one another. So it just be- creates all this like weirdness and tension inside the office that... um you'll just have to be comfortable with dealing um, with if that's something that you want to pursue. So, There is actually so much talking about relationships between the different characters because, of course, Zoe is also in a love triangle with Simon, and it's just very complicated because she's attracted to two guys, both of whom she works with in some capacity. I, I honestly don't know how SparkPoint gets any work done between <laughs> all of the subordinate dating um, and relationship. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, I suppose in some ways, uh, Max, who is her love interest slash best friend, he has actually offered a promotion to a different team on a totally different floor. And he asked Zoe, his boss, 
about whether or not he should take it. And shortly after he accepts, he starts poaching other talent from Zoe's team. So what should you do if your direct report is thinking about leaving? How do you retain great talent? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Zoe doesn't even have the conversation with him of like, what would it look like to stay? She just kind of says, if you want to go, go, which will make anyone want to go because we want to be wanted, right? We want to feel like we're doing a lot for a team and people want to retain us. So I think even just sharing the message of, hey, I would love to retain you. What would that take? What would it look like? Does it mean that you're looking for a promotion? Like, what is it specifically about what's happening currently that you want to change? Um, is the very first conversation to have. So it's definitely a co-creative process. There's nothing that you can you can build or design on your own um, that'll help someone stay. It needs to be a conversation with that person where you co-create what that future looks like. And I do want to point out that they did, in fact, do the song, I Want You to Want Me, only in slightly different circumstances. Again, more of a dating relationship <laughs> than a true. professional relationship, shall we say. I do think that as a manager... Um, it's important to not necessarily get to that point. Um, I, I get and understand that a direct report um, may want to keep certain things to themselves. So I, I want to honor that and not dismiss it. Um, but as a manager, I think it's important to, to be plugged in to what the aspirations of your team members are and, and not be caught off guard if someone decides to leave. So if you're doing your job right as a manager, you sort of know where someone might want to go in terms of where they want to take their career, the skills, again, that they want to be developing. Um, and if you're already in that co-creative process from the beginning, there it just makes it easier if that person does decide to leave, right? You can be a little bit more involved in you know, a transition that makes sense. Um, you can be an advocate for that person in like looking for different roles, whether that's in your company uh, or outside of your company. So if you're doing your job right as a manager, my hope is that you're not caught off guard by someone uh, thinking about leaving, um, but that you're actually part of their growth and then helping them move on to the next step. Yeah, right. That shouldn't be the first time that you're having the conversation. It shouldn't be like the very first time you've ever talked to them about career progression because that's that might be why they're leaving. <laughs> um, exactly. It should be a conversation you've been having all along. Yeah. So at, at one point, Zoe's actually under so much pressure from work and her life that she feels compelled literally to break into song and dance. No, 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 no. Please not now. Zoe, the timeline? And she does this at the worst possible time, which is, of course, during a presentation to the company's quixotic CEO. Is that, is that a good adjective? I'm sure we can come mm -hmm. up with some other adjectives to describe him. What should you do when you mess up very publicly as a new leader? Hmm. This oh, moment so is much so cringing. I know. This moment on the show is cool. so cringeworthy. Like Matt and I both, my husband Matt and I both like walked out of the room while we were watching the scene because we couldn't, we couldn't just full on watch it. It's so painful. Um, what to do? I mean, Zoe doesn't do this and it works out because it's a show and it's a sitcom. It's supposed to be funny. <laughs> so it's not as interesting to actually do the, the real thing. But I think 
uh, own up to it, be honest, be okay saying you failed and made a mistake, talk about what you want to do differently. Um, that's probably step number one, like humility, right? Being comfortable enough to say, oh, I messed up there. Um, here's what and why, and here's what I'm thinking next. And I expect all of you to help me design that next piece. Um, yeah, I would start there. That's that's step number one for me. What came to mind for you, Kristen? Um, very much the same. I think there's a level of accountability with your manager, right? So her speaking with Joan, but then also with her team um, and anyone else who's involved. I think it's really important to make to focus on the relationships that you have whether they're up, down, to the side, um, direct, indirect. Um, and, and I think that's part of the accountability, right? Like if, if you're thinking seriously about how your actions have impacted others, positive or negative, um, you gotta make sure to, to do that outreach and, and acknowledge what, what went wrong and, and what you're willing to do differently and also get feedback. Yeah. The thing I will say too, though, for underrepresented leaders, what I've seen a lot is um, this is the moment where your imposter syndrome is just like rearing its ugly head. And in the show, Zoe does make a mistake. She'd like, she breaks out in a song and, and kind of ruins a huge pitch meeting. But in another scenario, I could see this moment being something that wasn't that big of a deal, but because you are an underrepresented leader and feel this pressure of being the only female leader, the only black leader, or what have you, um, feeling like it's a much bigger deal than it is. So take a little bit of stock first. This is where you want to tap into your peers and understand, like, is it really as big of a problem as I feel like it is? Because the last thing you want to do is make it bigger by going around and apologizing to everyone mm. about something that, like, probably was fine at the end of the day. So I would take a little bit of like a take stock of what just happened and figure out how much of an impact is it really having. For to sure. be clear, we are not encouraging you to do a song and dance in front of your company CEO when there's a major <laughs> presentation, right? Or, or right. am I, am I misstating that? No, no, you're right. No, you're right. I was just interpreting more as like in a real office environment when you think you've made a mistake before you apologize to everyone Make sure that it's a big of, as big of a mistake as you actually think it is um, before you blow it out of proportion, especially if you're like in, an underrepresented leader. Yeah. Make the apology meet the, the consequence. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So I know it's a little bit off our main topic, but I do want to address the stresses that caregivers face at work because it is a major plot point in Zoe's Extraordinary playlist. Her dad has a degenerative neurological disease, and as a result, she's torn often between her work responsibilities and her caregiving responsibilities. So how can we as organizations help people who are in a caregiving situation, especially now due to COVID, but really anytime this occurs? It's a good question, and I love that this is a recurring uh, storyline within this because I don't think that's uh, central to enough storylines for, for shows that are happening in the work life and personal life. Um, but I think it takes a lot of reminding, to be honest, um, that that's something that the organi organization supports. So I think leaders can be both sharing that as a message, but also need to be showing it at the same time. Um, right now, a lot of organizations are under a lot of stress. A lot of folks are being asked to do more with less. Um, and so even being told that you're supported in terms of having a more flexible schedule 
or um, you know, being very cognizant of what times there might have to be a, a childcare handoff within a household. All of those things can be said, but they also need to be um, really supported and modeled if at all possible. So if there's a leader who also has um, caregiving responsibilities, uh, sharing that as often as possible, just so that people really believe that that is supported, I think is, is a really important step for organizations and leaders to, to be taking right now. Um, just because there can be some mixed messages if there are a lot of different demands on people. Um, so I think a, a leader who can model that is, is one who can put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, and just to double down on that, like there's a long history of um, caregivers being burned, right? Because they're, I mean, to be, to be totally honest about it, women often fall into the caregiver category. Um, and there was a long history of women being overlooked for things like promotions, et cetera, because of that caregiving responsibility. And so that's what you're competing against when you're trying to model or communicate that this is now something that is supported inside your organization. Um, and a good example of that modeling is for with, with our clients, for example, everyone's going through COVID. A lot of people have their kids at home while schools are closed. Um, one of the first things a client tells me when they talk about like working from home and being a working parent, if their culture is supportive of it, I keep hearing this comment of like, our leader even had their kid on their lap in a call the other day. Um, and the reason I bring that up is like, that is a really clear way to just model the behavior and it sticks with people. It's been said to me multiple times across multiple organizations that that was the, that visual of seeing their leader with a kid on their lap was the thing that made them feel comfortable to do the same. Um, and right now, like we literally don't have another option, right? People don't have another way of, um, both working and caring for their kids. And so hopefully if you're not already thinking about it, um, that gives you some perspective around why it's so important to support this in the first place. And just one more, more add there. Uh, I think being able to put some guidelines around working asynchronously, I think is another piece that, that can be really helpful. I think it's uncharted territory for a lot of organizations um, and folks need to be deliberate about how and when they're sharing with their teammates, like this is when and where and how I'm available. Um, and so just setting those expectations around working asynchronously, I think is is another piece to, to think about just so everyone feels comfortable um, sort of taking a more flexible schedule if you're in the position where you can do that. We spent this podcast really focusing on leadership and promotion, but SparkPoint seems to have a pretty loose approach to selecting its leaders. So what would you say is leadership material and what should you look for in, in leaders? Mm, I think there's like two levels of this. One is personal style and two is context of the role that you need them to play in, in this moment in time in history in your organization or your department, right? Um, and the role that they have to play, I feel like is more visible in the show um, they don't like personal style isn't as much of a topic, but when I say the role they have to play, the way that I think about it is like you're either a a leader who's building something from the ground up, you're hired to 
hire on the team to help them get started? This is like usually in a startup, right? It's a brand new team, or maybe the team is only a couple people and you're about to scale. And you need a leader who understands how to scale that team, how to direct them against bigger initiatives than ever before, how to prioritize those initiatives, how to work with partners across the organization. The second phase is like um, kind of mid-sized organizations or organizations going through that like transitional mid-sized stage. So it's more about scaling up. How do we now um, tackle more than ever before? And then the last one is how do we sustain? We've grown, we're huge. Now how do we continue to evolve and build as a team, as an organization, um, and continue to to be on the, the cutting edge of what we're working on and really like sustain that that work and the business that we're doing. And I feel like those are three different kinds of leaders. It's like the brand new, the somewhere in the middle, and then the like towards the end legacy leader who understands how to how to organize and motivate a larger organization. That that is the context piece. Um, Kristen, I feel like you'll have some good thinking around the like personal style side of things. Yeah, thanks. The um, one of the things that. Uh, time and time again, really sticks out with really impactful leaders that people want to work for and with um, is having the humility to know what you don't know and to seek that out, like seeking the expertise of others, understanding that you don't know everything, that you don't have all the skills um, necessarily when you immediately step into that leadership role um, and, and being willing to learn. I think that's one of the things that, that really separates um, really great leaders from others who may sort of get into a leadership position because they're the best individual contributor, for example, um, but may not naturally have that inclination to be um, really learning from, from, from others per se in terms of like what other skills, what other areas of expertise do I need to learn to be really uh, successful in my role. Um, the other thing that's top of mind um, that Jane and I have been talking about uh, is, is sort of how do you define the us and the them uh, when you're a leader for a team. Um, and there are a couple of different levels of that, um, that that you can see manifested in leaders sort of over their evolution and, and growth. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to be exploring is when you're leading a team, who is the us in that and who is the them and how are you defining that? So for example, is it on a one-to-one -one interpersonal level? Is it a us meaning like a collective team versus another team in the organization? Um, is it uh, an entire company uh, and the them is uh, other competitors, for example, or um, is that even at an industry level, an us and them that you're distinguishing between? And and part of this is like there, well, some some can be applied um, in a way that's not healthy, that is mm -hmm. that's negative. Um, but there are also aspects to that that aren't necessarily unhealthy. So they can actually be positive. Um, for example, in pushing an industry forward as an industry leader, um, if you're thinking about that. So so that's one other just like little tidbit to think about is if you're stepping into a leadership role, how are you defining us and them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, and I think the other characteristic that we think about, especially at Nobel, is just the ability to create psychological safety. It's one of the factors that creates high-performing teams. It's one of the best things that you can foster in your team if you're a leader. Um, but the understanding of what that is, what helps it, what harms it, is a huge 
boost to how you'll be able to lead your team because it ultimately impacts how innovative that team is, how comfortable they are taking risks, how open and honest they are about failures and how they'll fix those failures versus, you know, covering them up and, and having them become bigger failures. So all of those, like those emotional intelligence EQ pieces um, are just as important as like understanding the budget of the department and understanding how to hire people Right. And so it ends up being like this whole list of it's basically a curriculum that you have to understand if you're going to go into leadership. It does take training. It takes learning a whole new skill set. It's like a whole new type of job. If you are really good at being an individual contributor, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be incredible at being a leader. Um, but it doesn't mean that you won't either. It just means that there's a whole new uh, kind of lesson and and flow of information that you need to tap into to start to figure out how to upscale around those pieces. So last question, we have been brought in to consult for SparkPoint. Zoe's been reading our blog, The Academy, and she's passed on some ideas to Joan, who's now the CEO. So what is our first order of business? To, well, a few things come to mind. I think one, like we just talked about, that there needs to be management training at SparkPoint. They're scaling. People are getting promoted from individual contributor roles to leadership roles, but they don't really have a consistent um, philosophy around how leadership happens at SparkPoint and what makes a really good leader. And in turn, like, how do you then as a really good leader, help other people grow into successful leaders or visionaries inside the organization. That seems like a really pressing need and it's the perfect time for it. This is usually when we talk to startups about it um, is around this phase. You know, you're scaling up, things are starting to get more um, fixed in terms of how you work together and it's, start, it's time to start to create that philosophy around how you lead and what that looks like. Um, with that in mind too, I think on Joan's side, she's about to um, experience a whole new slew of challenges as CEO. And so I think she could really benefit from some executive coaching. She actually like is maybe one of the more coachable people I've seen in a television show. I only say that because usually I feel like characters in a television show are purposefully uncoachable because it makes them more fun to watch probably. But she's actually, she seems very coachable. Does she mean she's actually just easily influenced by the last person to talk to her? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. No, I feel like she, she learns lessons over the course of the show. Like I see her grow and develop and change her approach towards her employees. And so that's, I think that's why I say that is I, I see the, the kernels like developing into lessons in her brain and, and changing her approach which is exactly what you want from executive coaching. Um, so I could see that being really helpful for her. What would you add, Kristen? I think just to round out our general approach of, you know, when when we partner with a company, organization, whatever stage of, of growth they are, um, we like to work with a cross section. And so I think, you know, when we're thinking about that middle um, layer of folks who need some management training, who have like moved from that individual contributor to a leadership position, executive coaching for folks at Jones level. I think the other piece is probably involving uh, the individual contributors, right, who are involved day in, day out. Um, they see and observe and participate in the culture as well. Um, and so thinking about um, doing some retrospectives to understand how they're working together, um, what are some of their perspectives on their, their being 
heard and valued and seen. Um, getting their perspective, I think, is is another critical aspect to just to get a holistic view of of what SparkPoint might need. So I think working at all three levels will will be a, a good start. Yeah. The other thing I'll add, just based on what you were saying earlier around the us versus them piece, Kristen, is I see a real lack of focus on like consumer needs. Like I, they're, they're building this new product, but I don't see a whole lot of user testing or data around what do people actually want and um, how are we learning about that and getting feedback from potential users. So I think we'd also start to develop a little bit of a dialogue with them around like, what do we, what, what are the things that we need in order to build successful products that continue to help SparkPoint scale? And I would bet that as we have that dialogue, one of those things is like true feedback from the customer and how do we develop those feedback loops and understand how to build them into our process. Um, that feels like a real need there too. And something that I think usually people are really hungry for too. When you've gone a long time without that, it starts to be something that you're just like really desiring because you want to know uh, how people are using the things that you're building and designing. Yeah, there's definitely a, another energy when you have personas and their user journeys that people can really relate to. Um, we actually recently did this with a client where um, we were trying to understand um, who are their main users, like what are their main segments, um, and how do we just better understand their experience. And, and, you know, after doing a lot of discovery and interviewing, we pulled together these personas and they're like, oh my gosh, yes, that's her. I encounter her all the time and she does have all of those pain points and she does get jazzed and excited about X, Y, Z. Um, and so how can we build an experience around that? Um, yeah, so that's a really good point that you bring up, Jane. Yeah, and to your point, like going back to what makes high-performing teams, it's that connection to purpose and impact that also helps teams perform really well. And understanding who the customer is, who the consumer is, or the user, helps you get more connected to that purpose and impact, right? Otherwise, you're just kind of like working in your own little silo and you don't know how your work plays out in the real world. And, and tying that back can really help with the, the motivation, the energy, the creativity that um, comes into play when designing products. All right. Sounds like we've got our work cut out for us at SparkPoint. <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. Find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm.